0: Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, I got something really, really different for you this morning. Uh, it's not what I usually cook for you. Um, I, I was doing some studying and I got what I think is a revelation from the Lord a year or so ago, and I've sat on it because I had no idea how to present this on a Sunday morning because it's just so different. But Freedom, just a couple weeks ago, I said, Dad, when are you going to talk about that? Because I'd told Sarah and the kids, and Freedom said, I want to hear that, Dad. And so, at Freedom's request, here we go. Um, we're going to start in Leviticus. You probably haven't read 10 verses of Leviticus in your life, maybe, but you're going to get all 10 right now here. Um, It's generally seen as a very arcane book that has no practicality to our lives today because it's all about the priests and the lamb sacrifices in the tabernacle 3,000 years ago. But it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's actually a really beautiful book uh, when you see it through the lens of of who Jesus is. So I'm, I'm actually here to talk about Jesus this morning but we've got to start in Leviticus, so let's, let's read from Leviticus 25. On the day of atonement in the 50th year, blow the ram's horn loud and long throughout the land. Set apart this year as holy, a time to proclaim freedom throughout the land for all who live there. It will be a jubilee year for you when each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors and return to your own tribe. This 50th year will be a jubilee year for you. During that year, you must not plant your fields or store any of the crops that grow on their own, and don't gather the grapes from your unpruned vines. It will be a jubilee year for you, and you must keep it holy. But you may eat whatever the land produces on its own. Wouldn't it be really nice to just have a whole year off? Actually, God is so not into us overworking. He commands that we only work six days a week, and then he told the Israelites, you may only work six out of seven years. Every seventh year, you must take it off, do no work. And, and then he said, after seven of those cycles, after 49 years, on the 50th year, you get a second year off with no work whatsoever. And he said, trust me, on that last year when you do farm, I will bless your crops so much you have enough to eat for three years. And you will not go hungry. You will not starve. The whole, thing, the whole year is a celebration feast to me. And nobody may do any work. Like, God, you could command that again. In the, yeah. new, in the new covenant, we would take a year of vacation. That would be fantastic. All right. In the year of Jubilee, each of you may return to the land that belonged to your ancestors. When you make an agreement with your neighbor to, sub, to buy or sell property, you must not take advantage of each other. When you buy land from your neighbor, the price you pay must be based on the number of years since the last jubilee. The seller must set the price by taking into account the number of years remaining until the next year of jubilee. The more years until the next jubilee, the higher the price. The fewer years, the lower the price. After all, the person selling the land is actually selling you a certain number of harvests. Fear God. Do not take advantage of each other. I am the Lord your God. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis. So there's a lot going on here in these instructions about the year of Jubilee. It's actually way more than this passage I'm telling you. God says every 50 years we're going to do what I call Jubilee. And it's a total... Start over everything was restored, just like we just sang. God brings restoration. He said then the fifty every fifty years you 'll have a year of jubilee, and all of you who have moved away from your family must move home because i 'm going to restore your family he said if you've if you 've gotten into financial trouble and you 've sold off the land that I gave you, this is Moses talking to the Israelites in the wilderness and they 're about to go in under Joshua and attack Jericho and, you know, take the promised land, and God says, you're going to divide the land up by families, and you may never sell that land. It always stays in your family, so you always have wealth, and you always have a living, a a livelihood. And he said, if you do run into financial trouble, and you need to sell your land, you may not sell it permanently. You may only sell it based on the number of years till the next Jubilee. So basically, it was a lease. You can lease it out, but you may not sell it. Are you with me? This is what God has said. All debts were forgiven. Anybody, back in those days, if you owned debt, you couldn't pay. They didn't have bankruptcy. You had to sell yourself into what's called debtor's slavery, where you had to work for the person that you owed the money to until you paid it off. But God said, if you, when you reach the year of Jubilee, you have to forgive all debts and let that person go home. They're done, whether they paid it off or not. It's all forgiven. It's Jesus. Jesus is our Jubilee. Jesus is our Jubilee. He's the do-over. To start everything, You get everything back that God gave you, not what's been robbed to you by your own decisions and life and other stupid people. It's Jesus. Everything is restored. Families are put back together. Your debt, Every debt is canceled. And you not just get your debt canceled. You get everything back that God started you out with. Okay? But let's continue reading here. The land must never be sold on a permanent basis. If one of your fellow Israelites falls into poverty and is forced to sell some family land then a close relative should buy it back for him. If there is no close relative to buy the land, but the person who sold it gets enough money to buy it back, then he has the right to redeem it from the one who bought it. So you get to buy it back. The price of the land will be discounted according to the number of years until the next Jubilee. In this way, the original owner can then return to the land. If the original owner cannot afford to buy back the land, it will remain with the new owner, until the next year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee year, the land must be returned to the original owners so they can return to their family land. There is no record that Israel ever did this. They never did it. They were supposed to do this every 50 years. Release everybody's debts, free all the slaves, give everybody their land back, everybody move home and be restored to your family. And they never did it because that cost a bunch of money. They didn't want freedom. God wanted restoration and freedom, release from all debts. Like, no, I want to continue to demand that debt from that person. They never did it. But God did it on the cross. God did it in Jesus. So there's a whole lot to Jubilee, and it's not my topic this morning. I just want, for now, I just want to lay down a context for you that God says, As the people are coming into the promised land, every family is going to get a piece of land, and you may never sell it. It's yours forever, and if you do have to lease it out because you run into financial trouble, you get it back free and clear at the next Jubilee. If you buy it back before then, great, you can pay, you can buy it back, but it's yours the next Jubilee. It may never leave your family. Everybody with me? Okay. I'm actually here to talk about King David and Jesus, but we needed to lay down this context in case you weren't familiar with Jubilee and God's command that all land stayed in the family forever. So I want to talk about King David and then Jesus. 300 years after Moses, after this, David comes along. And I hope you know something maybe about King David. Maybe at least you know David and Goliath. Maybe you know David and Bathsheba. I don't know what you, what you all may know. Some of you a lot. Some of you may be very little. But you know that, hopefully, you know, King David was the youngest brother of a bunch of sons. His dad is Jesse. They lived near Bethlehem somewhere. Jesse is probably quite a rich man. And David is his youngest son. Was their seven sons, I think? I just want to make some observations about David and his property that he would or would not have inherited. According to these the family land you know that in general youngest sons don't get much at all in those days especially when the oldest son got everything you couldn't split the farm up with seven boys and have them each have enough to make a living so generally the oldest son got stuff actually the ancient Jews did not ever have such a law lots of cultures did but the ancient Jews actually did not have that law but that's usually what happened things went to the oldest son But not always, because Isaac was younger than Ishmael, and Jacob was younger than Esau, and so on. The fathers picked who got the inheritance. God picked who got the inheritance. Nothing was fair, and my point is, you know, that the runt of the family generally gets nothing. And we can see that David was a reject even in his own family. You can see it in the way his dad treated him the day he was anointed king. Samuel tells him, says, have all your sons line up. God, one of them's going to be king. And Jesse just doesn't bother to call David. That's right? right? Yep. Call all the older brothers. And, and Samuel's like, Ooh, this guy's a good looking. He'd be a good king. And God keeps saying, Nope, nope, nope. God says, I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart. And the king is not here. And Samuel's like, Didn't I tell you to call all your sons? The, the, the Lord says it's none of these guys. Do, obviously, you're hiding someone. And Jesse's like, Oh, yeah, well, the little runt is out in the field with the sheep. I guess we could call him in. So you can see that there's trouble between Jesse and David. And in Psalms, David says, My father and my mother have abandoned me, but God will never abandon me. In another Psalm, he says, I am a stranger to my brothers. They have nothing to do with me. So the Bible doesn't say exactly what all goes going on in the family dynamics there, but you pick up hints. Like when David shows up the day he fights Goliath, he shows up and his brothers like, What are you doing here, idiot? Go back home and tend the sheep. You're not a soldier, little brat. So I'm adding all this up to just say that David says he was a reject from his own family. His mother and father had rejected him. His brothers had rejected him. And... Then the whole nation rejects him after he's anointed king. Saul's trying to kill him. He has to run for his life. He spends nearly 20 years living in caves and living in the wilderness. He has to go live with the Philistines for a while and uh, hide from Saul. And then he has to pretend that he's insane so the Philistines won't kill him. He doesn't have any inheritance in his family. And he says in Psalms, he says, Lord, you are my only portion. You are my inheritance. It's all, you're all I have. I mean, the guy has a horrible, horrible life until he's 35 or 40. And then all of a sudden in one day, Saul and Jonathan die and he becomes the king. In one day. That's God's pattern. Life goes horrible until one day, Joseph is let out of prison and becomes vice pharaoh. Right? And Daniel is hauled off as a captive of war, but in one day he becomes the chief of all the wise men. Okay, so that's God's pattern. But this happened with David. He's a total reject from his own family, from his king. He has to leave his best friend So, I just want to point out, David has no inheritance in his family. He has has no property. He has no land. He has no home, even. He lives in a cave for a long time. And then he becomes king. David is a remarkable king, in that he sings at the funeral of the king he's replacing. (laughs) He sings Saul and Jonathan's funeral song, and... He honors them, and when Joab kills Abner, who's the general of Saul's army, David makes Joab lead the funeral procession, and David sings the song lamenting Abner's death, and in those days, it was unheard of. Every every new king put to death, every male relative, and every general and every advisor of the previous king, because you don't want any legal competition for the throne. Even brothers would kill, the the son that became king would generally kill their own brothers to make sure nobody takes my throne. And David not only doesn't kill Saul and Jonathan and take his own throne, or he doesn't take revenge, he's just an amazing king. He could have, as king now, David could have confiscated all of Saul's property and made it his own. He went from living in a cave to living in the palace but he doesn't take all of Saul's property Saul has made himself very very rich off the backs of the Israelite people and David could have taken all those palaces and all those properties and all those animals and all those farms but he doesn't he gives it away do you remember who he gave it to he gives it to Saul's grandson the next scripture is 2 Samuel 9 6-9 Mephibosheth is the lame son of Jonathan he was dropped as a baby and he broke his back or broke his pelvis or whatever he can't walk and he's the only living male relative of Saul left by all rights and all tradition and all ethical rules of the ancient world kingdoms David should have killed Mephibosheth so that there was no competitor for the throne but he didn't he calls Mephibosheth in And he came to David and he fell on his face and he prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. Mephibosheth thinks he's about to lose his head. He is absolutely certain he's about to lose his head. And David says, do not fear. I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog as I? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. David is just an amazing man. That is jaw-dropping generosity and godliness um, for that day in their ethic and what they thought was right and wrong and, and what a king should do to hold on to power and David keeps his enemy's son alive and feeds him at his own table. He makes him a very, very wealthy man. Actually, he's very young. He's probably in his older teens or early twenties at this point. Mephibosheth was a baby when Jonathan died, so he didn't know his dad. He may not have known that David and Jonathan, his dad, were best friends. Maybe he did. Maybe he'd heard stories. I don't know. But Jonathan, I saw. Sorry, David gives it all to Mephibosheth, and so he still David at this point. I'm just drawing this out. David has no property. He still has no home because he gives everything that he would have inherited as the royal palaces. He gives all that to Mephibosheth and the farms and the animals and the thousands of mules and donkeys that Saul had. It all becomes Mephibosheth. So in all of the life of David, the Bible spends four books talking on the life of David. In all of the life of David, we're only told that he bought a piece of property once. There's only one thing David actually owned and it was the only thing that was in his heart. When he was an old man, he was about to die, make Solomon king. David makes a huge, huge mistake, a a royal disaster. And we're not explained why it's so bad in God's eyes. But David takes a census of his population, of his fighting men's strength. I think what is wrong with it is that David has become very wealthy and very powerful. And he's an old man and he is now... He's counting his soldiers like, this is my strength. This is my glory. And he's not depending on God like he did in desperation in his younger days. I think that's the problem. But it's actually never explained. But it was so obviously wrong that even before he does it, Joab, who is as big a screw up as there ever was in David's life, Joab tells him, don't do that. You'll make God angry. So even Joab has a clue and David does it anyway. And Joab, who has no clues, uh, has a clue that God isn't going to like this. And um, David does it anyway. And sure enough, God sends the prophet Nathan, his other name in scripture is Gad, they're the same guy, sends the prophet Nathan to tell David, you have royally screwed up, no pun intended, and God is going to punish you and you may pick your punishment. You may have, you know, your enemies defeat you in battle, or you may... Uh, have plague strike your land or there's a third one I don't remember. I'm just giving you the context of the next scripture here. So David falls on his face and repents to God. He said, I'm sorry, please remove my sin. I throw myself on your mercy. And God sends a plague in Israel. An angel of the Lord goes through the land of Israel striking people sick and they're dying by the thousands. And apparently this angel is visible, physically manifested angel. It's visible. And David goes to confront the angel. That's a guy with some courage. <laughs> Just like when the plague broke out with Moses in the wilderness and the people of Israel, Aaron, Moses stands Aaron in front of the angel with the censer, and he's like, stop. And there, it's, it's a picture of intercession. It's what intercessory prayer is. is standing between the sinner and God and asking for mercy. That's intercession. David's not going out to fight an angel with a fiery sword, okay? He understands that, that isn't gonna, That's not going to end the same as Goliath. Okay? Um, he's going out to make intercession to beg God for mercy to stop the plague. So he finds out where the angel is and he goes there. And here's the, here's the second half of the story. First Chronicles 21, 18 to 22, 6. Therefore, the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to go to David and that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up At the word of God, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves, but Ornan continued threshing wheat. This guy is either completely clueless or very brave. (laughs) An angel shows up with a fiery sword, and his sons run away, but he keeps farming. So they didn't have combines in those days. You found a, a large rock that was mostly flat and you took your sheaves of wheat and you beat them on the rock to get the grain kernels to fall out you put the straw aside and then they would whip it with a flail to separate the grain from the chaff and then on a semi-windy day you'd take a shovel and throw the grain up in the air and it would blow the chaff away and you'd have a pile of grain and you put that in a basket and took it off and ground it into flour thank god for combines thank god for wonder bread that was a lot of work to have a hamburger bun I love a good, good cheeseburger. <laughs> okay, this is what Ornan is doing. He's, he's processing his wheat. And this angel with a fiery sword shows up and stands beside him and his sons run away in terror and he keeps working. But when David shows up, he falls on his face. <laughs> David is a fierce guy <laughs> and this guy knows it. So David came to Ornan and Ornan looked and saw David. He, looked, he ignores the angel, but he falls on his face in front of David. He went out from the threshing floor and he bowed before David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Grant me this place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. And you shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, Take it to yourself and let my Lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Also I give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. So David says, let me buy this from you. And Ornan says, no, just take it. Take my property. You can kill my animals. You can take my tools and just and make your altar and, and burn everything right here. Ornan is not saying this because he's a generous man. He's doing this to save his head. Okay? In the ethics of Middle Eastern ancient world bargaining, you always offered it for free. And the other party never accepts that offer. Okay, when Abraham is wanting to buy the cave to bury Sarah for a tomb, he he goes to the Canaanites and he says, "I need to buy this to, this cave to bury my wife in." And they said, "You can just have it." And Abraham says, "No, I will pay full price for it." And they say, "Okay, yeah, we'll take a half a million dollars." And he pays it. Yep. it it's just it's it's bargaining. It you know you at the bazaar. You know it's it's haggling over price. But there's a rules to how you do this. Ornan is not doing this because. He, he likes to, he's a Canaanite, he's a foreigner living in Israel. Uh, David is his king, but he's not an Israelite. He's not a Jewish man. And he's not doing this because he thinks David is so wonderful and I'm willing to give up my farm and my livelihood here. I'm, it's just, it's the rule of how you do it. And David says, no, I will pay you full price. So, continuing on the passage. Then King David says to Ornan, No, I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. According to Devin Fiorito on the radio on Friday, gold is at 1,200 and something an ounce, and there are such such many ounces in a shekel, I calculated all this out uh, yesterday, and that is $297,000 for a rock. That's probably more than most of the houses that people in our congregation live in, maybe, but 300,000 is not unheard of for a house now, but this is 3,000 years ago. And there's no house here. We're talking about a rock. <laughs> Just a flat spot on a hillside where the guy's got his grain. David pays 300000 for this. So David says, you, I will not take what is yours to offer to the Lord. I only go to the Lord with an offering that costs me. You've got to know that. Your offerings of time and worship and money to the Lord have to cost you. Or they are, by definition, worthless. If it's cheap and easy, it's cheap and easy. If it's expensive, it's valuable. Come on. What we give the Lord has to cost us or all you're doing is slapping him in the face and making him angry. It's a terrible insult to bring God cheap worship or cheap service. When it's convenient and easy, I'll serve. David says, I will not go to the Lord with something that doesn't cost me. So he pays $300,000 for a rock. And David built there an altar to the Lord, and he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he called on the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. This is like 200 years before Elijah saw fire fall. David sees it fall. So the Lord commanded the angel, and he returned his sword to its sheath. And at that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. Then David said, this is the house of the Lord God. This is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and of the joints, bronze in abundance beyond measure, cedar trees in abundance. Now David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced. He was nearly 40 years old. My son is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord will be exceedingly magnificent, must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, glorious throughout all countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparation before his death, and then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And from Second Chronicles 3, 1 and 2, it says Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. I googled pictures of this place, and I couldn't find any pictures from 3,000 years ago. Apparently, no one thought to take any before <laughs> Solomon <laughs> built this it's goofballs, I, I don't know. But we do have some pictures of what this place looks like today. We know exactly where this hill is. This is Mount Moriah right here, and today it is called the Temple Mount. It's where the temple was from Solomon until Jesus' day. There was four different temples on it, but it was all on the same hill. And today there is no temple. There is a piece called the Wailing Wall right there where the Jews go to pray, and they write their prayers, and they tuck them in the little cracks in the rock. You've seen that maybe, whether you've been there or just seen it on TV or the Internet or something, but... That's uh, supposedly the remains of of the temple that are left. And this is the Dome of the Rock. It's a mosque that the Muslims built during the Ottoman Empire several hundred years ago. The the government of Israel would love to demolish that and rebuild the temple, but you can't. You'd have World War III, Uh, although we're in World War III. Just nobody calls it that. But this this is Mount Moriah. This is the Temple Mount, and somewhere on that hilltop is the threshing stone of Ornan that David personally purchased for $300,000. And that was became the foundation of the temple. The next picture backs up a little bit, give you a little more perspective on the modern city. This is all the modern city of Jerusalem around it. This is still, you know, what today is called the Temple Mount. If you know your scripture, this is the Kidron Valley. You have to cross this to go over here to the Mount of Olives. This is the Somewhere here, Jesus and his apostles had their last supper. And then it says, and they crossed the Kidron Valley and went to the Mount of Olives. That's, that's where they went. The next picture shows a little bit more perspective. There's the Temple Mount there. Here's the Kidron Valley. This is the Valley of Hinnom. If you know your scripture, you know about Gehenna, which is a name for Hell. Um, this was their version of hell because that's where they dumped their trash and their sewage. There was continual fire there, and that's where the statue of Molech was, which was an idol with his arms out, and when their first son turned nine years old, they would light a fire under Molech's arms and lay their son in Molech's arms and burn him to death. And obviously there was a few Jews that didn't do that, but a lot of them did, and it was one of the reasons God judged them uh, through the prophet Jeremiah and Ezekiel, uh, he said, because you offer your sons to Molech, I am going to destroy your nation. And he did, because it's reprehensible. But we still do that today. America's killed a lot of our children. But this is Gehenna. This is where that happened. It's the scriptural name for hell. One more picture shows the Temple Mount from the opposite direction. So this is the Mount of Olives here. This is that Kidron Valley. So there's a looking south toward the Mount of Olives right there that gives you a picture of of what it's like today the, there's that mountaintop that is mount moriah that solomon built the temple on starting with the foundation of the stone that his dad had bought to end this plague it's where god the angel of god appeared it's where the fire fell on the altar and that altar is where solomon built the altar for the temple mount moriah is also the mountain where abraham offered isaac to God as a sacrifice. God said, Go to Moriah and offer me Isaac. I can't prove it. I'm sure it's the same rock. It's the way God does things. I, I'm sure it's the same rock. Uh, I can't prove it to you, but it is the same mountain for sure. Mount Moriah is where Abraham offered Isaac, it is where David purchases this property personally, and then. He gives it to Solomon to build the temple there. It's legal for David to purchase this because Ornan the Jebusite is not an Israelite. If David had bought it from an Israelite, then it goes back to him the next time Jubilee comes. And it's not David's. But he bought it from a Canaanite, so it's David's forever. Now this is David's property. You with me? It's all that was in David's heart all his life was to give was to worship God. And he said it broke his heart that God lived in a tent. He wanted him to have the fanciest temple on earth. And all that was in David's heart was a house for God, a house for God. He felt terrible. He said, God, I live in a fancy palace and you live in a tent. I want to make you a house. And God says, well, you can, but if you're a man of blood, you fought a lot of wars. I want your son who will be a man of peace to build my house. So David stores up, if you calculate it, it's actually billions of dollars worth of supplies for Solomon to build this temple on this property. But David as king, he could have, David could have just confiscated this property from Ornan. But he bought it. And scripture three times tells this story. 2 Samuel, 1 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. God wants us to understand, David did this in a way that is perfectly legal and unquestionable. David bought this property. David personally owned it. you with me? The threshing floor is his personal property. paid $300,000 at a crazy price. So nobody can say he was robbed. Nobody said it was taken from him. Nobody could say it belongs to me after Jubilee. It's now David's forever. To be passed on to his sons, never leave the family, forever. Anybody know a son of David that would have inherited this property? Hello? Everybody in Jesus' day called him the son of David because they knew, even the ones that didn't believe him, that he was the Messiah, they knew he was a legal descendant of David. Both his supposed father Joseph and his mother Mary were of the royal line. Some of you get it. In Matthew and Luke, we have the genealogies of Jesus. Matthew tells us Joseph's line from David to Joseph, and Luke tells us Mary's line from David to, all the way down to Mary and Jesus. Joseph is of the direct line of kings, all the way down to Jeconiah, the very last king, which was 400 years before Jesus and Joseph. But if Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army had never come in and hauled them off in the days of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego... If they hadn't been judged for their evil, Joseph would have been king of Israel, or king of Judah. Joseph was royal, but he was a nobody peasant carpenter. Because the royal line had been completely disrupted during those years of the captivity in Babylon, but they kept records. They knew. The genealogy is everything to the ancient Jews. Who is my father and my forefathers? So Joseph's line came from from David to Solomon, down through the kings, down to Jeconiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, cursed Jeconiah. Jeconiah was so evil that Jeremiah said, God says that you will be removed from your throne and Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and haul you off with a hook in your nose. And that is exactly what happened. Just months later, he said, You will never have a son sit on the throne of Judah forever. Joseph was Jeconiah's direct descendant. But Jesus is not Joseph's son. Jesus is Mary's son. <laughs> Mary was from David through Nathan, who is Solomon's older brother. Bathsheba had four boys. Solomon was number four. Nathan is number three. Mary came down through a line of father to son, father to son, from Nathan, who is just Solomon's older brother. All the way down to Mary's father. And then in scripture Mary has a sister listed. Who's James and John's mother. Jesus and James and John were first cousins. Mary has a sister named. But no brothers. So at the time. And now we still call Jesus the son of David. But is that fudging a little bit. Because he's not Joseph's son. Is it legal for him to inherit the title the son of david is it legal for him to be jesus to be royalty through his mother let's read in numbers in the book of numbers moses is dividing up the properties in the in the promised land amongst all of the families that came out of egypt but there is a set of sisters i think there's six or eight girls who have no brothers and their dad has died in the wilderness as god said all of them would and they did, except for, Jonathan, except for Caleb and Joshua. These sisters come to Moses and they said, Our, this is in the culture and a time in the world when women are nothing. And you still see that in ISIS. Women are bought and sold as slaves and, and they're assigned to marry when they're seven years old and so on. But back then, their culture was that husbands, bought their bride from her dad. Her dad picked the groom. She had no say. Sons inherited property, but daughters did not. And these girls come and they say, not concerned actually for themselves, they're concerned for their father's name. And they said, our father's name will be erased from Israel. He will have no inheritance if, because he doesn't have a son. And they go to Moses and Moses says, "I, I, I don't know what to do. I'll go consult the Lord. And Moses consults the Lord. And this is what God tells Moses. God is the ultimate progressive. He really is. Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of the Lord, saying, what the tribe of the sons of Joseph speaks is right. This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, let them marry who they think best, but they may only marry within the family of their father's tribe. That is a jaw-dropping statement if you know your history, that Moses says, let them pick who they're going to marry. Absolutely mind-blowing. For 3,000 years ago, in a Middle East culture, women had no rights, no property, and you certainly did pick who you married. Your dad made the deal with the other guy. And Moses says, you let these girls pick who they're going to marry, but they must marry within your own tribe, and then your sons will inherit in your dad's name. So the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers and every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe so that the children of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So God provides a way here for girls who have no brothers to inherit their father's land. The girls must marry somebody in their own tribe. One of the 12, you know, whichever one of the 12 tribes they're in and then their sons inherit in their grandfather's name. It's just, it's a, actually it's just mind blowing for 3,000 years ago in that culture that God said women, hey guys, it's okay for women to inherit property. (laughs) And it's okay for women to pick who they want to marry. It's amazing. But here we go. Mary is a descendant of royal males all the way from David to her dad. And then her dad had no sons that are listed. It's just her and a sister. Her son may inherit her father's line. Come on. Come on. Mary's son may inherit in her father's name. And her father is a direct line son of David. It is not fudging at all in any legal or spiritual way to call Jesus the son of David. He is totally the son of David and he has all legal lines and laws covered. David bought the temple property. He personally owned it. It may never leave his family. It gets passed down through lines. They did not have any law about the oldest son having to have it because Solomon is son number nine of David. And lots of kings chose a younger son than their oldest one to be kings. Some of the succeeding kings through Judah's line were brothers. Some of them were nephews. There was no law about half to be the oldest son. Any descendant of David may receive the line. So there's no problem that Mary is not the descendant of Solomon and so on. It's totally legal for Mary to pass on the royal line since she has no son, no brothers. Jesus owned the temple. And he still does. He owns that mountain. Not in concept, not in theory, not in metaphor. He owns it. Here's the deed right here recorded three times for us. So what? What does this have to do with Northeast Oregon in 2017 and my life and my problems? Well, you, you might ask that if you think Christianity is about you. I'm here to tell you, uh, it's not. (laughs) The American church has this idea that church Christianity is about you know five steps to a better marriage and three ways to be more fulfilled person and and this other stuff. And of course, yes, the Lord wants to minister to us. But but the gospel has two parts to it in Scripture. It's called the gospel of salvation, and it's also called the testimony of Jesus Christ. The testimony of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? How is he the Son of David? How is he the Son of God? How is he the Messiah? It's what the apostles died for, was the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm giving you this morning. Just the tiniest little piece of who is Jesus. How is he the son of God? How is he the son of David? How is he the savior? So what is Jesus' relationship to the temple? What what does this mean? It actually does have something to do with us today. It's not just abstract doctrine here that I'm giving you. Matthew 26, at Jesus' trial, it comes up in every gospel that they one of the reasons the Pharisees wanted him dead was because of his relationship to the temple. The chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. And even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So that was some of the false testimony about Jesus is that he said he would knock down the temple. Okay, this is another testimony in another gospel mark 14 says then some rose up and bore false witness against him saying we heard him say i will destroy this temple made with hands and within three days i will build another not made with hands not even then did their testimony agree all four gospels record the lies that were told about jesus on the night of his trial before he was crucified and all of them have to do with his statement about the temple being destroyed and he would build a new one so this, God wants us to get this because it's repeated over and over again. Matthew 27, now Jesus is on the cross in this passage. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it again in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. So even on the cross, they are taunting him with his statement about the temple. So this says, they falsely accused him of these things. What did he actually say about the temple? Let's look at it. In Mark 13, this is actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three Gospels record this story. As he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings these are. Meaning, look at these great buildings, Jesus. Look at this architecture. Isn't this awesome and beautiful? And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So three times, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get this story that a disciple says, Jesus, look at these gorgeous buildings. And Jesus says, it's all gonna be flat. And then they go across the Mount of Olives and in all three stories that Peter, James, and John ask him, okay, Jesus, what did you mean there? And and what should we be watching for? Because we don't want to be here when that happens. And in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get Matthew 24, Luke 17. We get these passages where Jesus begins to talk about the great tribulation. That's "That's the verses where he says, pray that your flight will not be in winter. Pray that you're not pregnant. Um, you know, watch for these signs. And Jesus says, be ready. Because it will come on you like a thief in the night. There's these three-chapter teachings that we get from Jesus right after this story. Where Jesus said, the temple's going to be knocked flat. So that's one thing that he said. And then the other thing he said is from John, chapter 2. He says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went to 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 Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews asked, answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? The, the uh, Pharisees, who were always looking for an excuse to counter him, said, what authority do you have to do this? Well, he just told them. He said, my father's house is a house of worship. Which father is he talking about, God or David? Both. Jesus just told them, it's my house. I own this place. He didn't say it in those words, but he did. My father's house. It's God and David. Either one, both. But they don't accept that. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? So at this trial, they twist that statement and they said that Jesus said he would tear it down. But he didn't. He just said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it back. He just, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it back. So the scripture goes on to say he was talking about his body, and he was, but he's also talking about the building that he's in because that did happen. It is true that every stone was knocked off of every other stone. In 70 AD, 35 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected and ascended to heaven, The the Jews rebelled against the Romans. There was a massive war. And the Romans got sick and tired of having to deal with the trouble in Judea. And the Caesar just said, destroy Jerusalem. Wipe it off the map. And so Titus came in. It's not the Titus in the Bible. Emperor Titus comes in with his army. And they attack Jerusalem. They siege the walls. Eventually they break through the gates. They rape all the women kill all the men, enslave all the children. Anybody they didn't kill, they made slaves and they began. The order from Titus was so emphatic that they n- literally knocked every stone on the, in every building and all of the wall, they knocked them all flat. Not one stone left on another. They did it in such a rage that they didn't even loot the city. They, le- they just left it all under the pile of rubble. Then they regretted that, so they enslaved the rest of the Jews for the next four years to dig through the rubble and get all the loot for them. It took them four years to dig through the rubble piles of a destruction they'd wreaked in just a couple of weeks. Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. And it came to pass 35 years later. It is God's answer to the crowd at Jesus' trial where they say, let his blood be on our hands and on the hands of our children. Okay. By the way, you have Jesus' blood on your hands too and that's a good thing. All of us have the blood of Jesus on us, either for salvation or for guilt. Every single one of us, the blood of Jesus is on our hands and on our children but they demanded it for guilt we call on it for salvation yes. in 70 AD Jerusalem not just the temple but the entire city was completely wiped flat completely annihilated josephus and four or five other eyewitnesses of the day say it was there was not one stone left on another which is why those of you who know about the wailing wall that can't be the temple it's not part of the temple There's plenty of evidence to support that. If you want to talk about that later, we can. It's not my sermon. Every stone was knocked off another, just like Jesus said. It is the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of Jesus working in what we call the church age or the New Testament, and he is building a new temple and a new Jerusalem. Come on. Who is the new Jerusalem? Who is the new temple that He's building? It's us. Check this out. You already know that. First Corinthians three: Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which you are. Second Corinthians six sixteen: You are that you is plural. You are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. We, the church, are the the temple that Jesus is building. We are the temple. Jesus doesn't want to live in a building of stone and gold. He wants to live in your hearts, our hearts, all together, the whole church worldwide. That is the temple of God. In fact, we are called stones in the building. Here we go. From Ephesians 2, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted in, together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Jesus uh, literally, truly, in all earthly law, he owns the temple and he could do whatever he wanted and he said, we're going to have a remodel project. We're going to demolish this and I'm going to build a temple of people. I'm going to build a temple of the spirit, which is what God wanted all along, was to live with his people. I don't want to live in some back room of a building and have a bunch of dead animals offered to me. I want to live in your heart and have your heart offered to me. The church is the temple of God that Jesus is building. And how long did Jesus say it would take him to build the new temple? Three days. A day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as a day. Second Peter. Come on. I know there's a whole bunch of you who weren't here two years ago when I preached on this. You can go to SoundCloud and listen. It's called, When Shall These Things Be? The whole thing about a thousand years is as a day and a day is as a thousand years. Seven days, three days, two days, one day. Jesus said, I will rebuild my temple in three days. We are two days into that three days. A thousand years is as a day, a day is as a thousand years. Are you with me? Some of you are. I will rebuild my temple in three days. Well, Revelation talks about another 1,000-year period coming after the return of Jesus that is the third day. That is the seventh day. And we're right at the end of the second day. When you build a building, you work on the foundation first, and you have to be very careful, and it takes a long time, and it looks ugly. Like, what will this ever be? Jesus has been building the foundation of his home. For two thousand years, and on the last day is when you put up the pretty stuff. That's when you put up the crown moldings and you paint and you hang in the decorations. Come on, come on. Jesus said, "You, you got to see this." Jesus said, "I will be buried and I will rise again on the third day." Early on the third day, he came back. Come on. This passage says, Jesus, when he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, it says he was talking about his body. His body was dead for two days and on the third day he reappeared. We are the body of Christ. For two days he's not around. On the third day, before the sun even comes up, he's back. Early on the third day. We're real close, folks. Stuff's about to get real, real, real fast. Jesus said he would build it in three days. We know the third day is after he returns. The third thousand year period. Come on. We're close. Jesus said, I will rebuild that temple in three days. We're about to start the third day. He's got a temple that he's making beautiful. He's about to put the finishing touches on it. The church hasn't looked like much for the last 2,000 years. The world's got some pretty accurate accusations toward us. Lots have been done in Jesus' name that isn't Jesus. But when he returns, the bride will be spotless. She will be ready. She will be clean. She will be beautiful. We are called the body of Christ. We're called the temple of the Lord. We're called the bride of Christ. We are called the new Jerusalem. It's all just about ready. It's all just about ready. From Revelation 19, Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. We haven't been ready for a long time. But it's coming. Yes. It's getting close. Revelation 21 says, One of the angels came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away to the spirit, in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the great city, the Holy Jerusalem, Descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, her light was like a diamond, clear as crystal. The city, the bride, the temple, it's all the same thing. It's us, yes. the church. Right at the very end, things are going to happen really fast and be very, very beautiful. Yes. Amazing. going to shine like a diamond. Finally, all the wrinkles get out. <laughs> Finally, we're clean and pure and ready to be with Jesus. It's coming. In three days, I will build it. He's coming back for that third day to finish the job. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for the excitement and the power of your promises and your prophecies. And Lord, we look for the day when all of your word will come true. We look for your return, not in metaphor, not in symbolism but your actual return lord your bride and your spirit say come we want to be your pure and holy people we want to see you established on your throne ruling in righteousness and justice restoring the world in jubilee setting all debts free restoring everything that you created it to be not what's been done to it we want to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. We want to see the name of Jesus lifted up. We want to see you on your actual throne as king of the world, judging heaven and earth, making everything right. So in the meantime, Lord, we pledge to be your temple, the people who house your spirit in purity and holiness and righteousness. Lord, forgive us. For being lazy, forgive us for compromising. For not being your holy bride. For wandering off and having other concerns and other priorities in the world. You are all that we care about. Your will, your purposes, your kingdom. Your kingdom is not about us and our lives. We are your servants, not the other way around. We are your servants. You are king. Forgive us for having the opposite picture of what church is. Lord, make, build your temple. Put each one of us in your house as you see fit, fitted together according to your plan and your purposes. We will be where you set us and serve where you command. Love the people you've given us to love. Do what you've called us to do. to be your holy people. We love you. We praise you. Thank you for revealing this to us. We anticipate your return with excitement. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.